This is Buffalo, What's Next? I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. And I'm Dave Debo. If ever there was an issue that demands more discussion now, the racist massacre at Tops Friendly Markets on May 14th is it. Um, you know, America has a long, deep, rich history of racism brutalizing black communities. But where does it go from here? What does our community need? We must work and teach our children. What issues just aren't being addressed? As long as we keep doing the same thing, we're just sitting ducks for the next mass shoot. That's all you can say. This is a new program. Every weekday, we'll set aside this hour to hear from the community about issues that can no longer be held back. We need to make a concerted effort in our nation, in our institutions, and yes, in our families. And good morning. This is Dave Debo. On the program today, we're going to be talking a little bit more about health disparities. You've heard us mention it in the past. You have probably heard the phrase social determinants of health. You're going to hear that phrase again today. If we're talking about the shootings on the east side, if we're talking about the environment in which people live, that is absolutely part of the discussion. Coming up in just a little bit, Jay Moran will bring that discussion forth. With Reverend George Nicholas, he's co-convener of the African-American Health Equity Task Force. He's with the Buffalo Center for Health Equity. He, of course, is pastor at Lincoln Memorial United Methodist Church. He's the guy that started talking about health disparities, I think, really, a lot long before the shooting and long before it uh, came forward in the public consciousness. So stick with us for that. It's going to be a great conversation. But in the meantime, we're going to talk about conversation. We're going to talk about language. We're going to talk about DEI, and sometimes even DEIB. There's a new phrase out there. We'll get to that, and we'll get to all of it with Dr. Brianna Cornelius. She's an educator at the Park School in Buffalo. She's a linguistics expert, and she has, I don't even want to call it a theory, but but she believes, as I think it's fairly obvious, that in a lot of ways, the language we use shapes our reality. Dr. Cornelius, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I want to talk a little bit about background. Mm -hmm. Um, You are a black woman. You grew up outside of Buffalo, but in an area in the South that is very similar to Buffalo's east side. Yes, sir. Do a little comparison for me. Wow. Well, I'm from Memphis, Tennessee. Um, I grew up in a neighborhood called Douglas in North Memphis, um, which I grew up being told that it was named after Frederick Douglas. I cannot confirm or deny that, but that is the narrative. Um, predominantly black neighborhood, lower income. My mom grew up there. My grandparents moved there years ago and built a home. And so it was a community, but in close knit, but over time, especially in the 90s when I grew up, um, gang violence took over. Just life on the streets kind of took over because of class disparities and access to efficient health care and just an environment that was healthy. The entire neighborhood basically is designed like a Pentagon. And so on two sides of the neighborhood, there are train tracks. And Mm. so there was just constant smoke and exposure to these freight trains. On two other sides, there were factories, one of which my grandfather worked at 50 years ago, um, that Release petrochemical, all kinds of 
<laughs> toxins into the air. And on the fifth side was an interstate. Um, so on all sides, we were getting all kinds of exposure. And at this point, the area code 38108 actually has um, an infant mortality rate that rivals many third world countries. And so when I moved to Buffalo and wasn't making very much money as a grad student, I could not afford to, you know, live in an apartment on Elmwood. Um, but also I wanted to be in an area that felt closer to home because believe it or not, in many ways that felt safer to me. I didn't mm. have to worry about walking into my apartment and having a neighbor who thought I didn't belong there, you know, call the cops on me. So I was very mindful about living in a space that felt like home and a community to which I could contribute. And so I found that in the East Side, um, the same sense of community, a lot of older residents, but also a lot of the same issues that I could help solve, hopefully. I think during the uh, course of this program, we've heard that from a lot of people, that mm -hmm. it's really, <clears throat> despite all the challenges, that it's very much a tight-knit, close yeah. community. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Talk about the racism in Memphis. Memphis, I think of as being deep south. Yeah. And therefore, um, to my mind, guys in hoods and burning crosses come to mind. Yes. Um, Still, when you were growing up in the 90s? Not burning crosses okay. that I saw. But okay. I distinctively, um, I remember watching the news. And like there were times when the KKK would go downtown and they would march. I mean, mm. relatively peacefully, if you would. But they would, you know, stand outside um, and like line up and march. And the news would cover it. And I was like, oh, huh, they're out, you know, again, protesting for whatever reason. And it just kind of was the norm. And this was probably as late as the late 90s. Um, so it was very much, it's, it's still a thing. I think the difference between that and here is that back home, with or without the hood, you are very aware of who falls where. Hmm. You don't go home with someone with the Confederate flag on their truck. You know what I'm saying? Like, you are mindful. We all kind of live in our own worlds. We mind our business. I know who you are. I'm not going to that part of town. If it's a sundown town, I'm not driving through it. I tell my brother all the time when he drives back and forth it's from Atlanta to Memphis. You know, you get gas. You know where to stop. When you run out of gas, it's a six-hour drive. And then you keep going. You do not stop until you get home. Mm. So I think we're more vigilant because we're more mindful and aware of the blatant racism. Here, not so much. More, a lot of, more insidious, would you say? Absolutely. Really? Yeah. Yeah, because you, you just, no one just outright says, you know, hey, <laughs> I don't like Mexicans. I would say, you know, someone from like the Latinx community, but like you don't hear people, they're much more mindful about their language. They're much more mi mindful about how they present themselves. And so their racism is more subtle. But in the city like Buffalo, with the segregation, it, it puts a different spin on it, a completely different spin on it. It's not the same as like Maine, where I grew up where the racism was definitely covert um, and you had to figure it out here in Buffalo, it is hidden, but it's also not hidden um, because we're all in our own zones. When I leave my zone and go to say Cheektowaga, it's a whole other ball game. You have people who don't think they're racist behaving in a manner, which is like blatantly offensive. And so it's, it's uniquely complex. Is it the kind of thing? And I know you talk about this in, in your education and DEI work. Mm -hmm. Is it the kind of thing that is just labeled or considered implicit bias? I would argue yes. Yeah, implicit, yeah. Things that people do that they're not even aware of. I don't think they, I think there are times when they do realize it, but for the most part, 
I'd say 90 percent of the time when I bring up something, people aren't even aware. It's become habitual. And this brings us to a great discussion about language, which mm-hmm. I know is an area you study. Mm-hmm. Give me an example of how language expresses implicit bias. Wow. Um, it's right on the spot. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> I may be walking down the street and I will see someone who is um, walking really quickly. And if it is a white person, I might go, oh, you know, he's on his way someplace. He's important. He's exercising. But if I see a black person and I have a specific implicit bias towards them, I might just stop, turn around and look and inquire, where are you going? Why are you moving so quickly? Well, what TV did you just steal? What, yeah, like, I, so, like, explicitly, I would say, what TV did you just steal? Yeah, yeah. You know what's behind the statement, but I'm not going to say that. I'm just going to ask, you know, are you lost do you need help? And that's the implicit part. You Do you would just, live you would here? just inquire. Yes. Okay. Yes. So it's like I am policing you in my own way, especially if I'm a person who happens to be white. I'm invoking that sense of whiteness that feels kind of responsible for policing the community mm-hmm. um, by making you account for why you're in this space at this time. And many, many people of color I've talked to use that example in a store. Mm-hmm. You're yeah. in a store and someone comes, yes. can I help you Can now? I help you? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, you don't actually want to help me. You want to watch me move through the store and make sure that I don't steal something because that's what, in your mind, you're assuming I'm going to do. But that I also look at that as sort of an active thing. Mm-hmm. Language, the way we express ourselves, mm-hmm. can convey an even more subtle yes. implicit bias. Yes. Tell me more. Well, First, language is action. Um, if you're like talking about someone like J.L. Austin and his book, How to Do Things with Words, language, it, it can be very much in your face. Um, action, active in every sense of the, <laughs> the word in terms of how we how it comes out implicitly. It's all about social cu- cultural competence. We all know that there are certain things that mean what they mean in our environment. You go to a red light, it turns yellow, you know what that means. Everything is a sign. We are all aware of these signs, even if they're not explicit. I am aware of the fact that if I go to a grocery store and I don't get a bag, a plastic bag, well, it used to be Mm. a grocery bag when I leave, that someone might assume that I'm stealing. Mm. That is a sign. So my mother had like this fear and I'm very much like, Save the planet. I don't need a bag. I just have one thing. <laughs> My mother's like, nope, you always get a bag because there is an impl- like an implicit sign there. Everything we do and everything we say is some type of sign that we've registered um, having a certain meaning. And so we are able to kind of use language in a way that expresses these signs without actually having to say. We can convey the meaning that we assign to the signs um, without actually saying it. Brianna Cornelius is here. She's an educator at the Park School of Buffalo. She works on both DEI, and we'll get to this, DEIB issues. And she's also a linguistics expert, actually writing a book on how language creates our reality. Take it into the classroom for me. Yes, sir. When you're dealing with uh, students, Mm -hmm. high school students, probably more middle school school students, are you needing to educate them about the way the way language conveys those hidden meanings? Absolutely. 
education is language. That's always the first thing I tell them. Well, the first thing I tell them is that none of this is real. Uh, okay. <laughs> all knowledge is man-made. And then they're like, what? And it, I, I just like to kind of rock them a bit to get them out of their comfort zones. Yeah. Um, but I like to give them a sense that what we see is language, education, history. It's actually relatively small when you look at the Earth's existence, the universe, is it like the impact of humans is very limited. And so if you can make yourself bigger than it, then you have an agency and you can kind of take over that knowledge and make sense of the world in the ways in which you wish. So along those lines, yeah, I walk in day one and I am walking them through like the ways in which they are going to learn instead of the content that I want them to know, um, which to me is a very... I try to be very deliberate about that distinction. I want you to learn how to think, not what to think. Um, and I do that to prime them to grapple with the material in a way that works best for each of them. Put it in the context of anti-racism. Are you teaching them how the things they say could be microaggressions, how yes. certain things convey images that they're possibly not even aware of? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um always making them mindful of what they say. As a history teacher, it's fairly easy for me, history and English, because mm. I teach them the power of language in English. Yeah. Um, but history, when I teach them in the beginning, I tell them it's it's written by the victors. And so we're going to walk through the narratives, language, right, of the different experiences of these different groups. Let's start with the Native American experience, pre-Columbian contact, all the things you don't know. Let's talk about, you know, Thanksgiving as a concept and the ways in which when we talk about these events, when we talk about historical events that we've learned about, we always show up as the hero in America. How is that reproducing a very specific narrative? How can we begin to talk about these things in a way that honors what happens for as many parties as possible without reproducing these same um, thought patterns? And you're, you're defining language very broadly. This isn't just, hey, kids, don't use the N-word. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Because you don't have to use it. I've met people who've never used it and are just as oppressive as the day is long. Um, <laughs> it, it's You can never use a certain word and have that hatred embedded inside of you. And you're not, nobody's born that way, right? So how did you get it? How did you learn that these specific, you can navigate life in this way through signs? And those signs accumulate to become language. We learn through what we hear. And you do this at the Park School. Talk about the student population there. I'm assuming it's mixed. It is, yes. Um, specifically our upper school. It's very diverse, um, which I am extremely proud of. We are working on our younger groups. Um, our middle school, yeah, extremely diverse. We have students from all backgrounds. We have a significant number of international students. Um, we... I think we make a concerted effort to increase the D in our DEIB, but I am very concerned about making sure we increase the environment so that it is conducive to keeping the D there. So it's no, there's no point in bringing more people of color or different gender identities, which we also have quite a bit of. We have neurodiversity. We have diversity in a beautiful amount of ways, an array of ways. But if we do not have a system and structure that is conducive to taking care of these different groups of people, instead of trying to push them into whiteness, then there's no sense in bringing them there. And so I think Park does a good job at making sure that 
all feel included and all have a sense of belonging. Do students of different backgrounds react differently to your concepts and curriculum? Yes. Explain. <laughs> I, I mean, some of that's obvious. I, yeah. ask, it, I ask it just a little bit rhetorically. Um, Obviously, a black student's going to react differently than a white student, but if you could elaborate. Absolutely. My, I'm very upfront, first of all, which no one really sees coming. I am not the old honey sweetie type. <laughs> um, I, I'm just, that's not my culture. And so when you look like me, which no one can see me, but when, <laughs> as an African-American woman, when I show up in a space that has been historically and predominantly white and wealthy, I mean, let's just be honest, me being loud and upfront and overt is never expected. Of course, the students of color, they find that familiar hmm. because we share that, you know, historical, that culture. And so they gravitate towards my means, my approaches, but they also gravitate towards my methods because I challenge conventional wisdom. And so the people who are usually most uncomfortable are my white students, specifically, which is interesting enough, white female students. Um it, it makes sense. There's there's a reason, but really, my white students I, in general, I, yeah. You, you glossed over it, so if you don't want to go there, let me know. But no, to, go ahead. To me, please. that's interesting. Yes. Um, because I think the stereotype is that the microaggressions mm -hmm. or the the inappropriate use of language, yes, would not necessarily be a white female. It's not. And we're talking about what age group? Middle school, right? Middle school to high okay. school. Yes. So the offenses usually aren't white females, but. The absorption and understanding of the ways we're supposed to exist in the world affect them in unique ways because in a patriarchal system, female children, if you live according to the binary, are primed to be mothers. Mothers are the ones who pass on our cultural norms, the expectations of behavior. So these girls um, or these, I should say, non-cis male students have been primed to absorb a certain amount of information, how to behave correctly, how to sit with your legs crossed, how to function and passively keep certain certain structures and beliefs going so when i confront those beliefs for them it's, it's almost like a reckoning because they're realizing that especially as white women they're inside of a system that's also oppressing them um, but they've been trained to keep it alive through some kind of weird motherhood priming mm. system does that make sense I, it does and I, I also imagine the fact that it's middle school has something to do with it because Absolutely. that's where Yes. You are discovering yourself and modeling behavior Identity and figuring out exactly, exactly who you are. Exactly. And that's, I think that's why it impacts them so much is because they don't have the white boy bro reality that allows them, if we're being frank, in a white patriarchal system, white males are basically allowed to do as they wish, to move freely, to take up space. White women are not. And so they have to make sense of that disparity. And you teach them that they don't have to fit that mold. Absolutely. In the language, in the way they model their behavior, yes. in their lives. Yes, absolutely. Yes, sir. Talk to me a little bit about trauma. Okay. Uh, I know that, again, if, if your focus is language, yeah. the way people process things is certainly pedagogically related to the language they use. Yeah. In a high school setting, uh, yeah, it might not be the trauma of a tops shooting, mm -hmm. per se. Mm -hmm. But there's a role in the discussion to look at how they process trauma. Absolutely. Um, well, my students experience any kind of trauma, which unfortunately it's commonplace, right, in America. There's always some kind of traumatic event um, happening. 
the first thing I do is I shut everything down. I shut the whole class down. And we're not talking about whatever the lesson is today. We're going to dig in. I'm going to create a safe space. I'm going to make myself emotionally available and vulnerable. Um, I'm going to give myself space to fall apart in front of them. Because I think grieving is important. I think so often we just try to gloss over things. We try to make sense of things. We want to kind of reckon um, with what's happening, but we don't give ourselves time and space to deal. And at this age, middle school especially, they're already having a, they are losing their minds. Hormones are going everywhere. You know, their bodies are changing. They're becoming adults, but they're still babies. There's a lot going on. And they don't have the language to process what's going on. My, my sister uh, has daughters. Mm-hmm. I, I don't. And she tells this wonderful story uh, around around uh, holiday gatherings. We use it to embarrass my niece. <laughs> she tells this wonderful story about how uh, the teenage experience is often something that, that is just unfathomable. Yeah. One day her daughter came home, threw herself on the bed, and started crying. Oh. And my sister goes up, uh, up to her and says, honey, what's wrong? Mm-hmm. And in the middle of her bawling, she just says, I don't know, (laughs) (laughs) which to me kind of encapsulates that teen experience. Yes. Something's wrong. You just don't know what the heck it is. They just don't know. And so I give them the space just like, I don't know, to freak out. And then when they gather themselves and they recover, I begin to just allow myself that space, but share with them. I don't know either, but let's find out why. And if you build a curriculum around addressing these structural and systemic issues, you can circle back to it in the case of a traumatic event. You can walk them back and say, hey guys, this is why health disparities in these communities are significant. This is why, you know, in mathematics class, statistics about redlining, this is, this is the actual impact of the things that we've been studying, right? So you can always make your way back to making sense of it with your lesson if you've built that foundation and you've been teaching it all along. And so all year long, I designed my curriculum around not so much preemptively anticipating trauma, but I know that it's inevitable. And so it's like, how can we explain this ahead of time? The Park School in Snyder, you've already talked about the diverse population. Mm-hmm. Did they have a specific reaction to the shootings at Tops? Yes. It was relevant to them. Yes. Uh, Um, uh, Students or the actual institution? Yeah, I'm saying the students. Yes, absolutely. What did you see? For my students of color specifically, I opened up an affinity space for them. They came in. um, We sat. We talked. We grieved. Some of them didn't say anything, which was also a thing. Um, But I spent a lot of time just caring for them because they were... Confused, shocked, as was I. Um, they intrinsically understood that these shootings targeted yes. people yes. who looked like them. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Yes. It took me about 12 hours to understand that when it happened. Because when I was first told about it, a friend of mine called me. And I live literally four blocks away. Okay. I'm on East Judica. And she says, um, where are you? I said, I'm home. She said, don't leave the house. They're shooting at tops. Now, for African-Americans, when somebody says they shooting at tops, I'm thinking something has happened. There's a interaction between two individuals. A conflict between two people, you not know, a guy that drove up from Binghamton. Yes. It okay. was not. There was a shooting at tops. 
And so I have to be very specific about my language here. And so I said, all right, cool. I'll stay home. I'm not planning on going anywhere anyways. It's fine. A few hours later, we find out what's really happening. I didn't process it until the next day when I realized this person had driven hundreds of miles, come here, targeted this space, scoped it out, like made a deliberate act to attack a very specific people. I was also in South Carolina, Columbia, when the shooting happened at Mother Bethel in Charleston. Mm. And so, like, it was it was like PTSD all over again. So it took me a long time to process that I, like, my people were being targeted. My students came in. They, they just knew. It mm. was just, it was, there's no denying it. None whatsoever. What about the white students? They had a harder time. Recognizing that? Mm, they had a harder time accepting it. They recognized it, but I think they didn't know. It's like some white adults, if I'm being honest, who were like, oh, my God, how, they didn't know how to process it because everybody's still living under the illusion that racism isn't really real. We're still trying to convince ourselves that everything is OK. And if people just pull themselves up by their bootstraps, everything will be fine. This is America. It was like a rupture mm-hmm. for a lot of the kids who genuinely thought that, like, we were past this. They thought it was over. Like Martin Luther King died. Isn't mm. isn't everything fine? Isn't that what my grandparents told me? Like every racism is fixed. We had a black president. And so for them, it was wrestling with the denial versus the reality that like, no, this was a specifically targeted act. Throughout the discussion this morning, we've uh, touched on health disparities. More on that in just a moment or two. Uh, Jay Moran with uh, Reverend George Nicholas. Dr. Brianna Cornelius is here. She's an educator at the Park School of Buffalo. She uh, is writing a book on how language creates reality, and she's really active in DEI, diversity, equity, equity, and inclusion. (laughs) Thank you. Had a a brain brain pause for (laughs) a moment there. Uh, But you you and and many schools, Mm -hmm. Park School and some others, have kind of stretched that. that moniker a little bit. Yes. Not just diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yes. But diversity, D-E-I-B, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Yes. Doesn't inclusion imply belonging if we're talking about language? One would think so. And if you do it correctly, if you create an environment that is inclusive, then those who have felt excluded will feel belonging. And so that B is really about focusing on the effect of what we intend to do. It is very important to understand the difference between our intentions and our effects. We can intend to be inclusive, but if you don't have a solid read on your population, you can try all you want. They don't feel like they belong there. They just don't. They don't feel like this is their home. And so the B allows us to kind of hone in on the actual students who are affected by our intended actions to make sure that they are feeling what we are hoping that they are. And if not, to reroute our setup to design it around making sure they feel like they belong so that inclusivity is a natural byproduct. That's very interesting to me because in the discussions that I've ever heard of DEI, Mm -hmm. there's always this emphasis on being intentional. Mm -hmm. Yes, you should be. but, But you're also adding sort of a little bit of an asterisk that says intentionality alone yes might not be enough absolutely if i accidentally hit someone with my car did not mean to didn't intend to i still have to deal with the effects 
And so intention is absolutely important. You have to be intentional in everything you do, especially with this work. Yeah, but you yeah. also have to be mindful. The problem is that we center ourselves. It's like me, my feelings, my intentions. I'm not racist. Instead of centering the person who's involved, their feelings, the effects of Include my actions. Them. Make sure they are belonging. Yes, That's so where the that B comes they in. belong. So it's about centering them. Absolutely. Okay. Yep. And that is a little bit of a mind shift, uh, a mindset shift. Yes. Yes, okay. sir. Are you hopeful? Always. I, I Anytime I've asked that question, I don't think anyone has said anything other than that. But explain. I try not to be too hard on people who lose hope. But in many ways, hopelessness is a very easy ticket out. These are solvable problems. Um, I am not the sharpest crayon in the shed. Um, and that was an intentionally mixed metaphor. But um, if I can begin to sit and strategize and come up with solutions and take a step back and look at how we got here, there is a clear path on how we got to where we are. And shows like this, efforts like this, show that we can actually take the time to be intentional and mindful about how we can proceed forward. I'm not at, like the request is not that we levitate and walk on water. These are solvable problems. So for me, hopelessness is just an easy way of saying it's too big. I don't know where to start. And it seems like it might just be easier to, to, to give up and not believe. But I don't think you have to believe at this point. The old, it is what it is. I'm the sorry. old cliche, we eat the elephant one bite at a time. That's right. Okay. And the, there are solutions. What does, you, you live on the east side, you said, yes, on sir. Utica, near yes, the sir. shooting scene. More broadly, apart from your work in the DEIB mm -hmm. arena, what does the region need? If, if I gave Dr. Brianna Cornelius a magic wand mm -hmm. and she just waved that thing all over the place, what would happen? <laughs> well, first of all, it would be pink and glitter would be everywhere. All right. Um, <laughs> I'm a huge fan of Pinkalicious, all by right. the way, on the show. And she walks around with her wand. Um, the one thing I think if I could wave this wand, it would be really to make everybody really uncomfortable. I think our biggest issue... The, the greatest barrier to change, as far as I'm concerned, is volition. We have no desire to truly change the systems in which we exist because in some way, shape, or form, we benefit from them. And that's all privilege is. It's collateral that guarantees that we won't fight back against a system from which we benefit. Um, but in order to get us to the space of the desire to change, there has to be a significant amount of discomfort. And we're not ready to sit in that discomfort and truly have a reckoning with ourselves individually and as a nation about how we have contributed to participate in even unwittingly. Um, and in some ways we do believe in these systems that are oppressive. And so if I could just like make everyone really uncomfortable, fall on the bed, cry like a teenager and just say, I don't know. That is the cracking of that, that ego like shell that I think will begin to get us towards the direct path. There is no end point. We only move towards freedom. We're moving in the wrong direction. And so to get us to turn around, that magic wand, would, it, start, it would start to break some hearts, not to crush them. But Even though it's spreading sprinkles and rainbows. Sprinkles and rainbows. <laughs> I'm going to make you cry, but it'll be okay. I'll All bring right. Kleenex. It's okay. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Dr. Cornelius, thanks for being here. Thank you so great, much for having me. Great discussion. Coming up next. And, and you, you heard her talk a little bit about health disparities. We're really going to get into it. Social determinants of health. Pastor George Nicholas is next with Jay Moran. Stay with us.
Hey, we used to love this song. We still do, but we used to too. WBFO The Bridge, college radio for adults. Check us out on the TuneIn app or on your smart speakers and, of course, wbfo.org slash the bridge. Sometimes we miss our morning alarm, then we miss our morning news, and the whole day is off. That's when you can listen to the WBFO Brief Podcast to catch up on the day's news and get back on track. Find it every weekday wherever you get your podcasts, and then like and subscribe so you never miss the award-winning journalism of WBFO's news team. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And welcome back to Buffalo What's Next. And we continue our conversation this morning. We have uh, Reverend George Nicholas of the uh, Lincoln Memorial United Methodist Church on Maston Avenue. Also, and this is really more of a, our focus here, the co-convener of the African-American Health Equity Task Force started in 2015. And uh, they've had some uh, very interesting offshoots since then. But now uh, the problems haven't really changed in a lot of ways. Uh, Reverend Nicholas, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for uh, having me. This Almost certainly. Uh, maybe just to go back and so we understand what we're doing here. Like it's 2015, the Health Equity Task Force begins. What was the initial idea? Well, you know, when we, we really kind of birthed out of a conversation about colorectal cancer and the, the high rates of African-American men with, with colorectal cancer. And I, and, and I said, well, I challenged the group. I said, let's look... Um, deeper. Let's look at, you know, all health uh, outcomes uh, for folks in the African-American community and specifically on the east side of Buffalo, about five or six, seven uh, zip codes where, right. where about 80 percent of, of black folks live in the, in the county. And let's look at the let's look at state and county data and uh, see what some of the health outcomes are. And we knew uh, just from looking at things that that the, the data was going to show tremendous health disparities. But what we were surprised in our, in our research is that how pronounced it, it, it was to the point where an African-American who lives in, uh, in the east side in, in one of these zip codes, one five, you know, and all these others, that, <clears throat> that they would have a 300% higher rate of chronic disease higher prevalence than a white person who lives outside of that community, meaning things like heart disease, diabetes, uh, hypertension, asthma, all these kind of things. And what's interesting about a lot of these things, they're, they're preventable, treatable, um, and um, but we just have just a disproportionate amount of people in that community who are, are suffering from these chronic diseases, and that's because of the social determinants of health. Hey, I was going to get into that because I saw this on the, on the website. <clears throat> we will give the community the language to explain health disparities through the lens of social determinants as opposed to only, quote-unquote, behavior as a strategy for narrative change. And that's a big element here because, right, like you were just you just alluded to, well, if, it's, if you have to change how you live, change your diet, change your exercise— it's that simple, but it's not that simple. No, it's not that simple at all. And and it's not just us saying it. I mean, you, the World Health Organization 
um, the Center for Disease Control, every reputable uh, organization and university and uh, healthcare system that addresses issues around health outcomes will tell you that it's the social determinants of health, the lived environment, that have the greatest impact on uh, health outcomes. So even when you say to a person, and what are the social determinants of health? We're talking about where you live, right? Your ability to obtain education, your interfacing with the criminal justice system, the environment, the air and water quality, your actual income, you know, and your wealth. And when you look at all those factors for African-Americans, there's a huge disparity between those who live in those communities and those who do not. It almost becomes an awful uh, algorithm to kind of use a modern, because if you look at all, like you said, if you take that, somebody lives in one of these zip codes compared to somebody who lives in a zip code of, say, Clarence or Hamburg or, or whatever, they're... Those levels of, of those determinants are going to be higher, and somebody growing up uh, in you know one four two zero four is going to be most likely going to be behind. Yeah, the data shows it. I mean, yeah. it's it's not you know it's not like a hypothesis or anything. I mean, right. the data the data shows this, and and it it can it gets so bad that uh, for African Americans who live in those communities, uh, they can live 10 to 12 less years than a white person that lives outside of those communities. That means less time, you know, with your grandparents going to, uh, weddings and graduations and the births of grandchildren, less wisdom and knowledge that is passed on. Right. And, 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 and then you have such a high level of people who are, um, dealing with family right now who, you know, uh, with dialysis and things of that nature, which which really impacts uh, <clears throat> uh, the quality of life of, of individuals. A uh, higher number of people who, with diabetes who have uh, amputations, sometimes eight times higher for an African-American to, to have an amputation than a white. So, I mean, the, the numbers are like really, really staggering. But again, it goes back to the social determinants of health, the lived environment. You know, we, we talk a lot about helping children. Children. And I think that's a great thing. We are, it's always easy to say, let's, let's raise money to help a child. But the reality is, can you really help a child without helping their family? And can you really help a family without helping them, the neighborhood in which they live in? And, and you really have to look at that kind of a more of a holistic uh, perspective, right? And look at all the factors that may uh, be barriers, for a person to have a healthy, uh, to live a healthy life. And then we have to address those things, right? You cannot um, <clears throat> just kind of put Band-Aids on or, or, or create a program without looking at the macro issues that created the disparity at the first place. And well, it's, I think, worthwhile to talk about your history here in Buffalo. Grew up in Buffalo. Mm-hmm. Uh, you went away for a while uh, for uh, both uh, for school and for some of your other pastoral work. So you have a perspective to look back at these east side neighborhoods from 30 years ago to now. It's, well, I, mean, I mean, it's gone downhill, yeah, to say the yeah, least. I mean, you could, and um, you look at the, the, the amount of, of vacant properties. Um, you look at um, the lack of, of black-owned businesses that uh, were staples in a lot of, uh, of the community. Um, and you just the general condition, right, 
of the community is 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 not as good as it was in the past. And you can, it's documented. So Dr. Henry Certainly. Taylor, in his report, "The Harder We Run," clearly documents, you know, the impact of residential segregation, um, the lack of black home ownership. Um, and and the fact that even in spite of the fact where there's been billions of dollars invested in the renaissance of the region, this community has still experiences, you know, high poverty rates, uh, low home ownership rates, high chronic diseases. Uh, the children in the in the school system are not performing at the same level as white children in suburban areas and things of that nature. So so the the measurements and, and it's not, you know, sometimes when you raise these issues, People think you're being cynical and whatever. No, it's not really being cynical at all. It's just being able, looking at reality, so that we can, we can prescribe remedies, that we can shift this. We shouldn't. I, I don't accept the, the the notion that well, you're in a community, you're just going to have to have certain pockets, where the, all these these these, you know, quality of life issues are significantly worse than other communities. I. I'd, I'd reject that, right? Certainly. And so, so if the, if you see in in a certain communities uh, just a number of issues, then then it, it's it's incumbent upon leadership uh, um, to address those issues uh, in a meaningful way. We're talking. Uh, we talked a little bit before we got in here about priorities. Yeah, sure. And it is interesting, and you brought it in, into perspective. Um, for example. If 10 years ago you and I were walking over where the odd used to stand in uh, sure. downtown Buffalo when we looked out and we would wonder, there's going to be change in this place. This is going to look different. And it looks dramatically different now. It's a very vibrant place to be. You argue it's because it was prioritized. Sure, sure. And, and so, you know, uh, it's not begrudging. I think it's great. Of course. Yeah, I think it's all of it's great. And but also it shows what can happen when uh, government, business, and institutions come together and say, "Listen, this is something we want to do." Look at the Jacobs School of Medicine. You know that 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 was you know the University of Buffalo and and government and and private industry and others saying, "Hey, this is something we want to do," right? And boom, there it is, right? And and so. Um, we just have not prioritized the redevelopment, uh, the uh, reimagining, reengineering of, of the east side. And particularly, it just hasn't the, – the quality of life and the lived experience of black people in Buffalo and in western New York has not been a priority for this, for this region for a long, long time, right? And, and as a result – because it hasn't been a priority, we see what we see, right? We, we, it doesn't happen because of just some kind of divine action, right? I mean, it's, you know, the, I'm a theologian, right? So there's things that happen because of, of divine action and there are things that happen because of the actions of man, right? And the fact that, that we have such crushing poverty when we had the May 14th uh, incident and, and with the shuttering of the supermarket created an absolute crisis of access to food for a lot for a large number of people who don't even necessarily live a few blocks from 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 uh, Tops Market over there. I mean, just living in proximity, right? Created such a food crisis that we had to have the World Central Kitchen right. locate, you know, 
an organization that's in the Ukraine, that's in, in Puerto Rico. It goes to disaster Oregon. areas. Yes, yes, that they felt like a need to come to the east side of Buffalo and to set up shop to give people food. It's a wonderful thing. It's a good thing, and, and I applaud them for doing that. But then we have to sit back and, and, and evaluate, you know, what you know? What did this incident on May Fourteenth? What did this expose? Um, it, it's interesting uh, you should say that because uh, in this morning's paper uh, there was an uh, article about some of the money that's going to be um, distributed uh, through some of these funds and such. And Deanna Eason of uh, of uh, Housing Opportunities Made Equal. Her, this quote, I think, boy, it hits it. She said, "That scab is ripped away again." And, and that's the way it feels, right, for that community that. Sure. It, people were living with what they had, maybe healing in their own way, maybe not healing healthy, but all of a sudden on May 14th, that yeah. scab, that sure. that sensation of of pain and uh, was just exposed once again. Uh, and, and how about in, in your church? I mean, what what have what have people <clears throat> been talking about? Yeah, well, uh, um, you know, uh, that Sunday, so May 15th, I May think 15th, was right. It was a very interesting Sunday, um, and I would say that the um, the most visible and pronounced feeling was anger. Um, one of our members' uncles, Haywood Patterson, was murdered in that space, and then and then others in the congregation talked about people who they knew. Uh, who lost their lives. And there was just an overwhelming sense of just anger. You know, even in, you know, we're a Christian church and we believe in forgiveness and grace and all this other stuff, but the reality of human emotion is, is and, and dealing with circumstances, you know, it was a, we were transparent enough to really talk about those issues. And, and anger not only limited to the incident itself, but the condition, right? The condition of 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 just again here we go again another another thing that's going to cause pain and suffering for our people and and so but in the midst of that anger you know there's resiliency and and the the understanding that regardless of the situation uh because of you know we stand on the shoulders of our ancestors who were you know enslaved and dehumanized for uh, since 1619 in this in this country, that you know we we got to press forward. We got to 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 we got to rebuild. We got to you know we got to come back again. But it, it's exhausting. It's 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 emotionally exhausting. And and you know because of structural and systemic racism that's been you know pervasive in this country from its from our inception. You know, it creates just trauma um, and and exhaustion, frustration, and anger, and 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 quite frankly, we're tired, and, and we're tired of always being told to wait. You know, how do you, how do you think it makes you know? And, and we, you know, black people are probably some of the best football fans we have. Black folks love the Bills, but think about a community that, you know where there's massive residential segregation where where large numbers of people are paying more than 40 45% of their limited income on on rental properties that are uh many times um substandard 
when they're sending their children to schools on the failing school list, when they struggle to be able to to get an increase of wages, you know, while inflation goes up, wages haven't gone down, and all these this trauma that 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 we deal with, and then seeing that government and others, you know, handing eight hundred fifty million dollars to a billionaire for a ball stadium, right? And but then when we're told that um, you know here are things in our community that we need, we're always told to wait. Or we're always told, but we, we don't have the money. Or you know, we got to figure it out. We got to we got to see where we can get that that those dollars. But then you see, you know, in recent history in this in this community, we saw, uh, you know, uh, Elon Musk, one of the richest men on the planet, get you know seven hundred fifty million dollars of government money, right, to to do what he did. Now you have another billionaire getting almost a billion dollars to do what they need to do. And and then yet a community where you we we've documented all these terrible health outcomes, you know, uh, where where people are, are have been struggling with issues of access to food. But, I mean, think about you got to get your mind right. around that in the United States of America, the year twenty twenty two, Americans, right? Many of them work every day, right? Have to 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 you know it's like. You know, the grapes of wrath, Steinbeck, you know what I mean? And, 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 and standing in line to get food. Are you kidding me? And then at the same time, you know, we have monies, you know, to do everything else that we want to do in this region. But then when it always when it comes to the time of let's let's reimagine, let's revitalize, let's do those things for the black community. We're always told to wait. And it's just it's 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 untenable and I, I and I, and I'm hoping that this moment this response to the May 14th incident will be a moment that will trigger a greater sense of urgency and a greater sense of prioritizing the needs of black people in this community and I speak in those terms very unapologetically the needs of black people because the data shows that black people are suffering disproportionately in this region to the point where where our bodies are infected with chronic diseases, with dying younger, you know, and it's just, you know, it, it's just uh, uh, something that we need to address uh, r- right away. It should have been addressed a long time ago. We're talking with uh, Reverend George Nicholas of the Lincoln Memorial United Methodist Church here in Buffalo and also co-convener of the African-American Health Equity Task Force. Uh, that's uh, actually our, our main thrust here, but it, but it is all interconnected, isn't it? Uh, you know, and you, you talked about, like you said, uh, the priorities have been there for a long time for black people in Buffalo, but have gone aside. Um, political leaders in Buffalo, um, some are black, um, what about that? What what's going? What what? How do you assess that? Are uh, are are? Is it just a matter of political power belonging to a, a, a small handful of influential people who are able to kind of get their way with city hall? Or well, it's just how? priority. It's, it's it's just you know it's it's about priority making the needs of our people a priority, um, and and being fearless about saying those things, about inviting uh, other leaders in the corporate community to go beyond charity and to start talking about investment and root causes. So, so you know, traditionally, you know, the, the role that 
you know, corporate America has played in, in, in these issues in the city of Buffalo has been just really about a charity. And charity's good. I'm not, again, it's not, I'm, not, I'm not against that. But there hasn't been real engagement across sectors, right, across the political, uh, institutional, corporate, and grassroots community-based people sitting around the table and really talking about how do we, how do we really, you know, wrestle with these root cause pro- problems and then resource them, right? Um, and, and so I hopefully at this point in this journey here that we'll, we'll recognize that it's important for us to build these tables and that community people, people who live in these communities have a right to be at these tables and their voices need to be heard. And, 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 and there's a responsibility, both civic and morally, by uh, uh, political and business leaders, right, to, to work on solutions to these issues. And, and there just hasn't been that type of prior to making that a priority. It hasn't been that type of leadership emphasis that, that uh, on these issues. And, um, and as a result, we haven't seen the, the change that, that we need. Um, and so I think we have an opportunity here. I think one of the things that I'm most proud of, you know, in my work as, you know, leading the Buffalo Center for Health Equity and what have you, is that we've begun, to, we have, we are engaging uh, corporate leaders. We are engaging uh, uh, people at the community level. We are engaging. But are they others. responding with, with real imagined response? So, like you said, if you go into corporate boardrooms, there's all sorts of ideas to get all sorts of things done. There are brilliant people inside there. There's, there's, there's processes in place to get done what that corporation needs to be done. Do you feel that you, what you're seeing now or hearing now is, is changing? Yeah, I, I mean, I can speak. I only can speak from the spaces that that our organization Certainly. is working in, right? And so, so uh, we have evidence. Uh, the Buffalo Center for Health Equity is is fully funded as an institution to to work on the issues that we need to to work on. Uh, the University of Buffalo has stood up an institute within the university, the UB Community Research Institute, that's specifically addressing the issues around health equity. And now the uh, Erie County, under the county executive's leadership, uh, have uh, stood up an office for uh, health uh, equity within the county health department. So so there's spaces now to get the work done. Um, and, you know, there's there's conversations that they're recently, um, you know, I'm on the board of the Population Health Collaborative, and we've recently merged with HealthyLink. And and if you go back and look at this stuff, health, this new entity has clearly said that that working on issues of health equity is going to be a priority. It's going to be part of our DNA as an organization. Um, and so, so those are just you know examples. And sure. You, and, and so, and you have people like you know Jericho Road and the, the Raul Vasquez and all those others that are out there in this space that are building the type of collaborative collaborations that are, we can address those things. So, it's. It's 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 monumental work, right? But but I do see um, you know tables being created now to have these conversations and to begin to start you know thinking about ways in which we can address these root cause issues. It's it, it's it's takes a lot of work, right? But um, but you got to start somewhere, and so I, I feel pretty good about about where we are in, in some of those some of those spaces and. You know, a shameless plug. We're having our next Igniting Hope conference on August thirteenth. 
Um, and, you know, we invite everybody to come and, and to, to what engage. Would we learn? What would we learn if we can? Well, I mean, we have lots of well, speakers, but the main thing we're, we really want to talk about, again, what is the the next step of our work, right? Right. And I think really one of the next steps is community engagement at a much greater level, right? We really got to, we really got to have a, a much richer understanding of of the needs in these communities and how we can address those th needs. And I think the best people to tell us that are those who are living in those spaces, right? And, 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 and then mobilizing institutions and other organizations to do what they do uh, to address these issues. So um, it's not sexy. It's not, um, it's not as easy as just like going and, and handing people stuff. We're, we're really, we have this by feeling that, you know, we, sitting down and having conversations, trying to figure out what to do in a bigger way is, is where we should be going right now. Um, and then, and then acting on, on, on what we, on what we learn. And, um, you know, one of the things that I think could be a, a great outcome is really, you know, we've, they've talked about it in the past is, is doing a type of a demonstration project in a, in a, you know, isolated neighborhood and, and, and just, pouring in the resources, doing the things that you need to do. To show then, what can be done. Yes, and then just multiply that. And it, it happens in other cities that, that that have done those kind of things. Yeah, you mentioned other cities. Uh, I, I've had an opportunity to talk to some other folks who've lived in other cities to compare and contrast their experience. You spent time with your ministry in Rochester. Yeah. Uh, how is uh, life different for black people in Rochester than in Buffalo? Oh, not that much. <laughs> um, um, you know, uh, we had done some work there. The home of Frederick Douglass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the the struggle is pretty, you know, it's really black folks in urban America and all in America that are, that are struggling, right? Um, but there are pockets. There's some there's some good work that's being done in, in, in Cleveland, Ohio. And recently I was in Pittsburgh and saw some, some good work that was doing. Can it. you lay that and, out? I mean, let's maybe then let's, let's, let's take the final moments of our, our discussion about imagining what maybe you saw in Pittsburgh that could translate into well, Buffalo? Well, in well, the main thing really in Pittsburgh that I saw and in Cleveland were were the partnerships, the really the the corporate entities um, willing to engage with community and make an investment, right? Um, Putting and, a, a a corporate office there. What, well, no, what, no, how no, that no, 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 no. I mean, for example. Um, um, uh, we we had been in conversation with this woman named Heidi Gartland that works with the uh, I kept the name of this place at uh, Cleveland, it's not the Cleveland Clinic but a Cleveland Health System okay. and and um, and they have you know got engaged in, in doing some things around housing, uh, doing some things around uh, creating access to food, uh, doing some things about creating access to health care for and transportation issues and all these things, and and working with the community in a part of Cleveland, not the whole city, right, and have been able to to see some outcomes, right? And one of the things that 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 Heidi shared with me is that that, you know, the corporate entity having to acknowledge that some of this work right now won't be profitable. Right. A key so element there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's an investment we're gonna have to make that we may not see a return on right now. But it's the right thing to do, and then over time, as the community becomes more stabilized and whatever, it's a more vibrant community. Um, 
and that's better for everybody, even, including right corporate entities, right? So, so there's there's a level of altruism, and then there's a level of self interest, and that's just that's the reality of America, right? So, Certainly. so, so embrace it instead of having these philosophical conversations about things, recognizing the reality of the situations in which we live, and 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 and, and impressing upon the corporate entities in this in this society that you know there's a there's a value add. And we'll have to leave that as the last word. Uh, Reverend George Nicholas, thanks for joining us on Buffalo What's Next. Thank you for uh, having me. Reverend George Nicholas of Lincoln Memorial United Methodist Church on Maston Avenue here in Buffalo, also the co-convener of the African American Health Equity Task Force and also the Buffalo Center for Health Equity, our guest in part two of today's Buffalo What's Next. also want to thank uh, our first guest, Dr. Brianna Cornelius, linguist expert, talking with Dave Devo earlier in this hour. And coming up on Monday on Buffalo What's Next, Dave is going to have an hour-long conversation with uh, Thomas Buford, the new executive director of the Buffalo Urban League. This has been Buffalo What's Next, and you're listening to WBFO and WBFO HD1, Buffalo, WOLN, Olean, and WUBJ, Jamestown.